Section 17 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17, Peter the Great and Charles the Twelfth, Part 1. Section 1, The Northeastern State System. In the northeast of Europe, there was a group of countries which, though not without influence upon the history of the rest of Europe, for nations cannot live separate lives without intercourse with their neighbours, may yet be regarded as forming a separate state system. This group must not, however, be left undescribed, partly on account of this connection, but more especially on account of the remarkable character of two monarchs, one of whom influenced the future of his own country, and through it of Europe, to an extent which has been granted to few in the whole course of history. This state system consists of Denmark, Poland, Sweden, and Russia. Just as the nations that occupy the stage of what we call ancient history are grouped around the Mediterranean Sea, so are these nations gathered round the Baltic. Of the four, Russia had as yet no territory on the shores of the Baltic, but she had already turned her eyes in that direction, seeing the advantage which a footing on the coast would give. Her rulers had already shaped their policy, her opponents, notably the famous Gustavus Adolphus, had planned resistance to it. Poland had two provinces, West Prussia and Livonia, on the coast of the Baltic, but she had also a feudal suzerainty over two others. The three countries, Denmark, Poland, Sweden, had for about two centuries preserved a balance of power in the Baltic basin. At one time, one of them would be stronger than another. Of the three, Denmark was now the least important. Nearly two centuries had elapsed since it had been at the height of its power, but its territory was still much larger than that which it has today. The kingdom of Norway was under its crown, and the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein had the king of Denmark for their duke, an arrangement which remained in force until the Danish War of 1864. Yet although separately Denmark was not to be feared by its neighbors, it might become important at any time as a factor in a combination. Sweden also had passed the epoch of her greatest power, but very substantial results remained behind. Not only did she hold all the country which is now Sweden, but also the province of Finland, on the east of the Gulf of Bathnia, which had long been hers, but which now belongs to Russia, and in Germany, upon the other side, to the south of the Baltic, she still held part of Pomerania. The period of Sweden's greatest power was during the two years when her king Gustavus Adolphus placed himself at the head of the Protestants of Germany and turned back the tide of defeat from the Protestant cause. Whatever may have been his motives, and those who have studied his history most are agreed to place them very high, the aggrandizement of his country was certainly the result of his campaign. During the remainder of the century Sweden was looked upon as the chief Protestant power in Europe. England, indeed, alone of other states, was capable of disputing the position. Under Cromwell, England was the chief Protestant state, and Cromwell valued the alliance of Sweden. In the reign of Charles II, 
when the counsels of sir william temple prevailed over baser counsels for a short year and england determined again to assume that position it was sweden that with holland joined england in the triple alliance the mere formation of which was sufficient to bring france to terms sweden however did not join the grand alliance probably because she felt that she had work to do nearer home by that time moreover her influence in europe was beginning to wane the kingdom of poland had large territory and yet did not exercise much influence on the politics of europe the reason for this is to be sought in the nature of its government poland was an elective monarchy during the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries the monarchy had been nominally elective but really hereditary but on the extinction of the house of jagellon which during that time had been on the throne the nominal character of the monarchy became real at each vacancy of the throne there had been the form of an election by the diet but after fifteen seventy two this form became a reality the evils to which an elective monarchy is liable showed themselves in poland all the nobles had a right to elect and all the sons of nobles were nobles themselves a hundred thousand armed men appeared on horseback at the elections the candidates before election pledged themselves to increase the privileges of their electors until all the kingly power was given away and poland became what has been well termed a democracy of nobles foreign powers also interfered and used every means in their power by bribery corruption intimidation to influence the elections defeated candidates raised up factions and the ultimate dismemberment of poland after two centuries of this experience however unjustifiable on the part of those engaged in it was the natural fruit of the form of its government and of the conduct of its own nobility of the four nations forming the northeastern group russia though on the eve of a forward start which would in an incredibly short space of time make it a first-rate power in europe was the least known it was usually called muscovy from the name of its capital city it possessed very little of european civilization the oft-quoted phrase of napoleon if you scrape a russian you will find a tartar which means that under a superficial european polish the russian is still at heart an asiatic would before the accession of peter the great have required the modification of omitting the first clause the superficial polish was not there few in the west of europe knew anything about russia it was not an element in the calculations of statesmen the russians in return knew nothing about europe they were a nation of uncivilized barbarians closely connected with asia slightly connected with europe the russian empire had spread only in the direction of the north and east at the accession of peter it had none of the coastline either on the baltic or the black sea yet peter's predecessors had already begun to covet it there is extant a letter from gustavus adolphus in which he showed that russia would become formidable a dangerous neighbour to sweden if it held certain places which he regarded as the keys of the baltic he thought he had taken measures sufficient to secure these from falling into the hands of the russians it certainly is a tribute to his foresight that those very places 
stand about St. Petersburg. The rise of Russia to a prominent place amongst European kingdoms, however the way may have been prepared for it, was due to one man, Peter the Great, whose character and work we proceed to describe. Section 2. Peter the Great. Peter's father was married twice. He had two sons by his first marriage, Fyodor, a delicate invalid, and Ivan, who was half an idiot, besides several daughters, of whom the most remarkable was Princess Sophia, an ambitious and talented woman. By the second marriage he had only Peter and one daughter. When Fyodor succeeded his father, Sophia obtained all the real power in the state, and when he died after a short reign, she managed still to preserve power as regent and guardian of her two brothers. Lest Peter should wrest it from her, she did her best to stunt his education. She dismissed the tutor in whom his father had placed confidence, and surrounded him with worthless companions. But it was all in vain. When he was nearly seventeen, the party in the state who were opposed to his sister encouraged him to throw off her tyrannous regency. He sent her into a convent and her advisers into exile. This was in 1689, the year after the English Revolution. Peter owed nothing to education, but by the mere force of genius on taking up the reins of power, he immediately saw the state of his country and made up his mind to reform it. He recognized that Russia was backward as compared with European nations, and his policy conceived at the first and resolutely followed may be summed up in the one phrase that he wished to make Russia European. With this object he sent many of his subjects abroad to study how Russia could learn improvements from the other nations of Europe, and after a time he determined to travel himself. We know his appearance almost as well as if he lived in our own days, so often has it been described. He was very tall and had the figure of a powerful, strong man. His features were strongly marked, a fine, massive forehead over which great clusters of jet-black hair would hang, massive brows from under which his black eyes flashed, now fierce, now piercing, as if he would read the very secrets of the heart. His mouth gave tokens of power. His smile was very gracious, but his frown terrible to behold. When at rest, there was majesty about his face, but at times a troubled, nervous look would come over it, then would follow a wild twitch of face and of hands, then a convulsion during which he was ungovernable. This seems to have been hereditary. He tried to conquer it, but never could. His visit to England was well remembered. In his travels, the countries that he most wanted to see were England and Holland, for he desired to make Russia a maritime power, and he thought that from these two countries he could learn useful lessons. There was something very far-sighted in this desire, for in the whole of his dominions there was only one port, Archangel, and that was in a sea which was inaccessible for half the year. The Russian navy had to be created from the very beginning, for there was not as yet a single ship. Moreover, owing to an accident which he had suffered when a child, he had a great distaste, almost amounting to a nervous horror of water. But he conquered this so completely that in a storm 
he once was able by his calmness to quiet the terrified seamen fear not who ever heard of a czar being lost at sea he visited holland first and there in the dockyards of zandam he worked with his own hands as a ship's carpenter he lived as the other workmen and worked very hard thus he learnt the arts of shipbuilding and navigation after nine months in holland he passed on to london at first he lived in a house in norfolk street which overlooked the thames he was anxious to see everything in england but he did not wish to be seen himself at the theatre he witnessed the play from the very back of his box screened from public gaze by his attendants he looked down upon a sitting of the house of lords through a small window where the king and the lords saw him and burst out laughing when he went to the king's palace he was admitted at a back door he went privately to oxford but being soon discovered he immediately came back to london without viewing those curiosities he intended he moved from london to deptford where he occupied the house of john evelyn an english gentleman of letters who has left a diary that gives considerable insight into the social life of his day he says that the czar and his people were right nasty in their habits at deptford peter spent his time as at zandam but neither in england nor in holland did he confine himself to the work of a ship's carpenter he was making inquiries about state matters about laws and law courts about religious matters he was inducing englishmen scotchmen dutchmen to settle in russia and take their skill with them he visited sweden and brandenburg and returned to his dominions after an absence of a year and a half the most significant of all peter's reforms was the removal of the capital the traveller from moscow to the shores of the baltic sets his face westward peter was looking to the west for his model and wished russia to be european and no longer asiatic the old associations of moscow drove him from it the connection with europe enticed him to the baltic but it well illustrates the power of peter over his subjects that he could make them quit their old capital for the russians loved moscow with peculiar love they call it still the city of god they reverence it as their holy mother at the first sight of its towers and pinnacles the russian pilgrim falls upon his knees in awe yet notwithstanding this affection and the consequent opposition of nobles citizens and priests peter carried out his plan nor was he even deterred by the physical difficulty of his task the ground on which petersburg is built was a marshy swamp the city had to be built on piles like a dutch city thousands it is said lost their lives during the building but peter did not hesitate and petersburg called after his own name stands as a monument of his firmness the alteration of the calendar also was another of peter's reforms the russians hitherto had dated from the creation but he adopted the system in use in the rest of europe it is to be noted that the russians still reckon by the old style peter the great was a reformer in ecclesiastical as well as in political matters he abolished the patriarchate thus making the union of church and state complete hitherto the patriarch had power over the church as despotic as that of the czar over the state henceforth there was to be but one head on the death of the last patriarch he kept the sea unfilled 
and when the priests disconsolate at seeing the vacant chair asked him to appoint another he said i will be your patriarch even the fashions of europe were to be imitated by his subjects the habit of shaving the beard the smoking of tobacco the very shape of dresses the bringing the women out of seclusion all of these he forced upon us reluctant people there was so much resistance to the fashion of shaving that at length a tax was imposed upon those who wished to retain their beards and a medal bearing a head ornamented with beard and whiskers was given as a token that the tax had been paid tobacco smoking was not unknown in russia before having been introduced by english merchants at archangel the chief opposition to it was raised by the priests on the ground that not that which goeth into a man but that which cometh out of a man defileth him patterns of dresses were hung up at the entrance to a town and the inhabitants were to be punished if their clothes were not cut in accordance with the government pattern but the social change which did most mischief was his determination that the women were to be drawn from their oriental seclusion a change for which they were wholly unprepared and which coming suddenly could only do them harm the most important of his domestic reforms was the institution of the chin from early times there has been a powerful hereditary nobility in russia a custom had almost grown into law that no man whose ancestor had held a higher place than the ancestor of another man could serve under him without a stain upon his honour the inconvenience of such a custom is manifest peter's predecessor had caused all the nobles to bring the records of their genealogies as if to compare them and had then publicly burnt them this was a severe blow to the principle of hereditary nobility but peter substituted for it an official nobility called the chin publishing a table of fourteen degrees civil and military by which all questions of rank were to be decided the lower grades being duly subordinate to the higher thus he substituted what is called a bureaucracy for an aristocracy on his return from his first journey peter found a formidable conspiracy against his authority he put it down with great severity actually assisting with his own hands at the execution of the conspirators a corps of troops called the strelitzes holding a position of great importance in the state somewhat analogous to that of the praetorians at rome formed the centre of this conspiracy peter abolished the corps with the help of artisans from holland and england he created a navy when a child he delighted in a little boat which he saw upon the river that flows through moscow he made that little boat the germ of the russian navy he christened it the little grandsire and had it removed to petersburg end of section seventeen